the Lancastrians decide to stand and fight just south of, of, of Tewkesbury. So a number of the Lancastrian leaders get, get into Tewkesbury Abbey, where they try to claim sanctuary. Uh, but Edward is having none of it. And essentially, he, with his troops, he enters the uh, the abbey and he drags them out. Is Margaret of Anjou. That's it for her. This is her, very much her last hurrah. And so uh, after this, you know, she's lost her husband. She's got, she's lost her son. So what is there to fight for? And what ultimately for her is a, is a foreign country. Welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey Brawl, and to our latest historian interview. Hello again, if you are a returner and a warm welcome to you. If you, this is the first time you have been to my channel. If you love British history, then you're definitely in the right place. If you take a look, we have a whole library full of historian interviews, virtual tours, mini historical documentaries. And you can also find me here live every Wednesday at one o'clock for Tea Time History Chat Live. But today I am talking to Julian Humphreys about the Battle of Tewkesbury. It was a bloody clash that brought to a halt the Wars of the Roses in May 1471. The Yorkists under Edward IV beat the Lancastrian forces and Henry VI's only son and heir, Edward, Prince of Wales, was killed. So Julian read history at Emmanuel College, Cambridge, before spending 12 years at Chelsea's National Army Museum, setting up special exhibitions and acting as spokesman to the media on all matters military history. He has acted as historical expert on a number of TV programmes, including Channel 5 select series on British battlefields. He's featured a number of times on BBC Radio 4's Rambling series and made three expeditions to Bosnia during the Civil War to record the British Army's activities there. Julian set up and led English Heritage's Battlefield Hikes programme and in 2009 was appointed Development Officer of the Battlefields Trust. He lectures and writes on many aspects of British history. He's a regular contributor to both BBC History and History Revealed magazines and has published a number of books. Now, as usual, members of the British History Patreon Club have been able to submit their own questions for Julian. And I will put those to him at the end of the main interview. That makes up the extended ad-free version of this interview. If you'd like access as well as the opportunity to ask all any future guests your own questions and a host of other history lover benefits as well, including being part of our book club, it's all for £5 a month and you can join at www.patreon.com forward slash British history. But today, let's get on talking about the Battle of Tewkesbury with Julian Humphreys. Julian, welcome to the British History Channel. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to this. Well, I've given everyone a brief introduction to you and your background and your work, but in your own words, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, well, hi, everybody, and thanks for taking the time to, to listen to me. So I'm Julian Humphreys, and um, I've been talking about battles, really, for about 40 years. So I used to work at the National Army Museum in London, which tells the story of the of the British Army. And that's where I kind of started my, my guiding uh, around battlefields. I also do work for uh, English Heritage. Their new programme of battlefield hikes is out, if you remember, and I'm wandering around the country for that. 
Um, I write a little bit. I've just finished a, a, a book uh, or co-authored a book on battlefield hikes around the world, although I've restricted myself to the UK on that, but there are better equipped people to do the rest. Um, and um, I do a lot of guided tours around, around the country, and I'm one of the trustees of the Battlefields Trust. So it's great to talk about Tewkesbury because it's one of our, our key battlefields. And we in the Battlefields Trust try and preserve and interpret those battlefields and make people interested in them. So it's good to do this because we're doing it right now, aren't we? Indeed. So, well, let's get into it then. So can you give us some context around the the battle? Um, you know, what's the situation in the country at this time? Right. Well, first thing to say about the Wars of the Roses, I think, is that they are wars. They're not the War of the Roses. Uh, in other words, it, it, it's not one drawn out conflict. It's a, a, a series of conflicts, maybe three main periods of fighting. And the Battle of Tewkesbury is in the second of those periods of, of, of fighting. And it brings to an end about two years of rebellion and civil war. But perhaps to understand that very, very quickly, we'll go back to what it's all about and what the Wars of the Roses are all about. So, you know, we, we'll go back to the, 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 the 1450s and really what brought about the Wars of the Roses in, in brief was, I suppose, the inadequacies of Henry VI as a ruler. If you're going to be king at that time, you've got to know how to handle your aristocracy, really, because you rely on them for, for government. And if you don't, divvy up the jobs, for example, you can run into difficulties. And Henry VI was a very weak, mentally unstable monarch who was prone to favouritism. He particularly uh, liked the Beauforts, or at least perhaps his wife, Margaret of Anjou, very powerful figure, more of a man than uh, than Henry ever was, really, um, favoured the Beauforts. Now, that rather hacked off um, another branch of the royal family, the House of York, and we're talking here about Richard of York. This isn't Richard of Gloucester, the future uh, Richard III. It's his dad, Richard of York. And Richard, the York had, Richard of York had a claim to the throne through both his mum and his dad. But really, you know, he wanted to be at the centre of government would be the way to look at it. He wanted to be essentially the protector of the realm, particularly in those periods where um, Henry VI had periods of mental instability and of course if you are at the center of the of, of, of the realm it means that you know you benefit from more patronage and you can distribute patronage yourself and he found himself isolated and so the first part of the uh, of the of the wars of the roses can be seen really as that struggle between henry of lancaster's supporters and on the other hand richard of york and his supporters by supporters there i mean the family that are going to be key at the Battle of Tewkesbury in many ways, and that's the Nevilles. Now, the, the, the Nevilles, the most famous of the, of the Nevilles, is uh, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. And he's often described, you know, as, as the classic example of the overmighty um, noble. And to a certain extent, he was. Although, to say he was perhaps um, ambitious is perhaps to get it a bit wrong, because when he was a child, he was married off to one of the Beecham family. And as a result, he got this enormous inheritance that he didn't choose to have, a huge inheritance across the country. So he had the Neville lands, but he also had the Beecham lands. And as such, you know, he was one of the most powerful and rich nobles in the country. And as such, he was able to intervene in politics and warfare effectively. But also he kind of expected to... Um, be consulted in things if he helped somebody and help indeed he did because Richard of York was killed um, 
1460 at Wakefield. And the Yorkist cause was really carried forward by, by Richard's uh, son, Edward of March, the future Edward IV. And Edward IV um, was really uh, crowned as an, uh, as an alternative to, to Henry VI. And he was triumphant at a battle outside of York at a place called Towton. Huge battle, very bloody battle. But what it essentially did was it destroyed the, the Lancastrian forces and it enabled Edward IV to act or to become king, really, and uh, rule he did then from 1461. Um, and of course, the, one of the people that had been a, a key player in, in him becoming king was Warwick, uh, Richard Neville, or Warwick the Kingmaker, as we sometimes now um, refer to him, or many people refer to him as that. And having, you know, done the heavy lifting, really, for Henry, uh, for, excuse me, for, for Edward, Edward IV, you could say that, uh, that Warwick expected to reap the rewards. Now, what would they be? Well, they would be a central place in government, a say in foreign policy, a say in national policy, and good marriages for his daughters, yeah, two daughters, and uh, with this huge inheritance to deal with. You know, he wants to get good marriages for them. And there we are. So that's what he's expecting. But things don't quite work out that way, because uh, one of the um, accounts of the ending of this period of the, of the Wars of the Roses, uh, it, it sort of drags on until 1464, because the Lancastrians had a lot of castles up in the northeast, places like Banborough. Dunstanborough, Annick, these mighty castles in the northeast. And it took a long time for the Yorkists to essentially um, capture them all. And it said that, uh, that the Nevilles, so um, Warwick and his brother, uh, John Montague, did this. And it, it said one of the accounts said, whilst um, Edward enjoyed the pleasures of the chase. Now, the chase in question, you know, you could say, well, it's, it's hunting, but it was probably Elizabeth Woodville because um, Edward... Uh, married secretly this Lancastrian widow, Elizabeth Woodville, who appears to have been pretty good looking, uh, but uh, it looks as though she wouldn't come up with the goods that uh, Edward was hoping she'd come up with unless he married her. So he seems to have done this in, in private. Now, this is a, a, a kind of tricky situation and it really causes the fighting that we are going to hear about in, a, in um, a, a few minutes because now, Warwick didn't know about this, and it said that he announced at court that he'd come up with a great plan for a, a continental marriage for Edward IV. And you imagine them all in court, can't you? And then Warwick said, this is what we're going to do, and we'll do this, and we'll get an alliance, and so on and so on. And Edward had to say, well, actually, uh, Richard, I, I should have told you this a little bit earlier, but um, I'm already married. Well, well who to? Uh, to Elizabeth Woodville. What? That Lancastrian, low-born Lancastrian. So it's a humiliation for Warwick, but it's worse than that, because with Elizabeth Woodville came a large number of relatives. Now, the Nevilles had a large number of relatives as well. And over the years, you know, the, the Nevilles married into all the families, you know, even the families that they ended up fighting against, like the Percys. But, you know, you, it's a good charge if you pulled back a medieval noble bedspread in the uh, in, in this period there'd be a, there'd be a Neville on one side of the bed or the other you know so they're they're kind of hoovering up the marriage market and as I mentioned Richard uh, Neville Earl of Warwick he wanted to marry off his son his two daughters 
um, as advantageously as possible. But suddenly, you know, there's another family getting in the way all of, of this. And uh, the Woodville start to hoover up the marriage market. And uh, Neville is, is, is losing influence. And as a result of that, you know, he feels, well, you know, I've backed Edward all these years. I, I should not be sidelined. And of course, if I am sidelined, my inheritance that was, you know, legally it was a it was a tricky inheritance that's going to be challenged. And so as a result of that, you get this break between uh, Edward IV and his old supporter, um, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. And, and this enables um, the, the rump of the Lancastrians, in, by which I mean, in particular, Margaret of Anjou, Henry VI's wife, to take advantage of the situation. And so over the, the, the two years preceding the Battle of, um, of Tewkesbury, uh, you get a situation where Roy, Warwick is trying to undermine um, Edward IV. He's trying to control him. So at one stage, in fact, he foments a rebellion and the rebellion um, uh, is, is successful enough and he actually has Edward IV in custody. But it was very tricky to rule through Edward without Edward um, cooperating. And this they, they give up on this. And when another rebellion against Edward fails, um, Warwick goes into exile and he hooks up with Margaret of Anjou, Sir Henry VI's wife. Now, it should be said at this point that Henry VI is not dead. He is a shadow of a king, really. He, he, you know, we often say perhaps he would be better suited to be, you know, an abbot or, or something. But I don't think he even could have done that. He would have, there would have been uproar in, in his monastery as he said one thing one day and then changed his mind the next and said yes to the first monk that spoke to him and then said yes to the next one, etc. But there we are. So Henry VI is, has not been killed. He's uh, a prisoner in, in London. But his wife is very keen, you know, to restore him. Not, I think, because she thinks that Henry VI is an able monarch, but he, to her, he's the rightful monarch. But more importantly, somehow she and Henry VI managed to have a son. Now, there's a lot of debates about this because Henry VI is not normally seen as, let's say, the most manly of, of, of monarchs. And uh, even at the time, people said, well, he cannot have fathered this son. It was probably, you know, the, uh, the Earl of Somerset or James Butler. He was a good looking chap. I bet it was him. But there was never, you, you know, I, I, Henry clearly saw this son, this son as, uh, as, as his heir. And it was really um, Margaret's refusal to see that heir disinherited in a peace idea that they had earlier where Henry would rule. And then when he died, Richard of York and his offspring would become king. But I think that Margaret was not prepared to see her, her son, Edward, who by the time of the battle is about 17 He's about that. I think he's 17 at the time. He sees him as the future of the, of the Lancastrians. And she sees this, um, this, this falling out between Warwick and Edward IV as an opportunity to um, restore Henry VI and with it, the Lancastrian dynasty. Interesting chap, um, young Edward. Um, I think he took, he certainly didn't take after Henry VI. He seems to have taken up... Uh, after perhaps more his granddad, um, Henry, Henry V and, um, and Margaret, because uh, the Milanese ambassador said that even in exile, he was talking about cutting off heads and battles and what have you, as though he was king already. And it is said that um, at an earlier battle, um, he um, instructed two York 
you two Yorkists uh, that had stayed with him to to uh, to or stayed with his father to guard his father and were captured, who'd been quite loyal really to Henry VI, but he ordered them to be to be executed, probably at the behest of his advisors. But there are so he's a pretty tough individual. This is not some child that we're talking about, um, uh, Prince Edward. So there's a situation. We've got a situation where, I guess, uh, Warwick has fallen out with with with, with Edward, and as a result of that. Margaret of Orange sees her chance and they have a rapprochement. Now, they were old enemies, Warwick and, um, and Margaret. And it's said that when they met, Margaret kept Warwick on his knees for 15 minutes before she would even talk to him. But she saw him as an opportunity, as he saw her as an opportunity. So this is a, an extraordinary alliance of convenience, really, between mm-hmm. Warwick and Margaret of Anjou. And um, it works initially. Um, Warwick is, uh, is, is able to uh, overthrow Edward IV and Edward IV goes into exile with his mate, um, William Hastings, and his younger brother, um, Richard of Gloucester, the future Richard III. They go over to the Low Countries to Bruges in exile. Um, and you have this period called the Readaption, which is essentially the victorious Warwick and Margaret going into the Tower of London, pulling out poor old Henry VI, spruiting him up a bit and parading him through the streets of London. Here is your king. But I think it backfired spectacularly because Edward IV was a strapping lad. He had a lot of charm about him. He seems to have been able to win people over. He's the sort of guy, I suppose, a bit like Robbie Williams, I always think, that men wanted to be him and women wanted to be, shall we say, with him in that way. So Edward IV had all of this charm. He was a good soldier. He was the very image of what a king should be. Poor old Henry VI was none of those things. So you can imagine this sad figure being led through uh, London on a horse, you know, not really knowing what's going on. So it's not going. It's probably not going to work. What was his mental health like at the time he was released from the? Table? Right. Well, like, you know, he he had these periods of um, of, uh, of of mental collapse. You know, maybe it's overstated. I think uh, how often this happens, but I think at this time. Um, I don't I don't think he was in one of his at an earlier period. He seems to have been pretty catatonic at times, you know, but I think at, at this period he's not like that. But I don't think I think he just kind of reacts to things. He's he, he's got no powers of leadership whatsoever. So as a king, he's totally unsuitable as a, a, a sort of a relative. You, you'd say he was better than he was before, but I don't think that you could say any more than that. So he's a, if he ever was a force. He's now very much a, a spent force. So he's a, if you know, if you ever you want a, an example of a puppet monarch, this is your man. That's how I think to, to think about it. So Edward is not the kind of person to just give up. And um, in early, um, so this is happening incidentally, 1469 to 1471. And in early 1471, Edward IV uh, returns to England um lands um up on the up on the east coast and um he's joined by um, um well he, the forces of amongst others um william hastings who was his big mate and they got a force together and in many ways that the, the key player at this period is is the other um brother of edward the fourth um clarence, I was about to ask clarence where is he? yes yeah so he is a a, a, a character that that you know, has ambitions of his own. Um, ultimately, he, he overplays his hands and uh, 
famously in Shakespeare, at least he was he was drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine. Although I doubt that really happened. I think it's just a sort of uh, a gag almost, you know, that uh, meet a fitting end in that way. But you know, he he initially supports Warwick. Now this is uh, this is makes it very difficult for Edward the Fourth. But Edward the Fourth. Um, you know, is able actually to, uh, in a piece of theatre, really, Edwards uh, meets what uh, um, Clarence and Clarence has his forces there and Clarence changes sides and he joins um, Edward IV. And this is a kind of key moment, really, because it it weakens Warwick's uh, position with 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 um, Clarence on his side. I think that Warwick would have been very difficult to cope with. At this time, incidentally, it should be said that that Warwick is is back in, in England. You know, he's he's overthrown um, Edward IV, and he's now ready to do battle against Edward. Margaret is still over on the continent, and she's setting sail um, for uh, England, and she's heading for the West Country because there's a certain amount of Lancastrian support in that area. Families like the Courtneys, for example, who had been out and out Lancastrians. Uh, through the, the Wars of the Roses. The Beauforts had a lot of land in the, in the southwest, so she's going to go down there, and she's eventually going to land at Weymouth, but we'll come on to that a little bit later. And then um, on the 14th of April, the two, the, 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 the two armies, that of, of um, Edward IV and, and that of Warwick the Kingmaker, clash at Barnet, which, if you don't come from, uh, from England, it's just north of London, and you can get to it on the subway. It's one of the few battlefields you can actually reach by taking the tube, as we would say in these days. So it's up one of the great north roads. And it's a very confused affair, this battle. Um, it, it's very foggy, so nobody could quite see who was where. Um, the two armies didn't line up properly opposite each other because they couldn't quite see where they were in the fog. And as a result, one side of the battle is a success for the Yorkists um, under Edward. The other side is a su- success for the Lancastrians, and it was a, a man called John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, who would later command uh, Henry VII's vanguard at the Battle of Bosworth. And on one side, the, 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 the Yorkists are, are, are successful and they drive back the, the Lancastrians. On the other side, de Vere is successful, but he's not able to keep his troops under control. And they're a little bit tempted by the shops of Barnet down the road. So off they go, do a lot of pillaging. And when they come back, in all the fog, they're mistaken by the rest of the uh, of the Lancastrian Warwick's army as um, returning or, or Yorkist reinforcements, and the Lancastrian army dissolves in this in, in, in this sort of infight where they start attacking each other. Disaster, of course. The, the The Lancastrian army dissolves into flight, and many people are killed in that flight, including um, John uh, Neville, Marquis of Montague, and his important brother Warwick the Kingmaker they're both slain in this fight and really that is a a sort of crushing end Mm. to the Neville dominance in this period so they're Uh, killed in this odd fracas that happens after yeah Yeah. wow so now now this has huge impacts of course because uh, long term because the Neville's got a lot of land lots of lands you know there they've got a lot of land in the north of England in particular that's important because they were a counterbalance to the Percy's earls of Northumberland who tended to be uh more often than not Lancastrian they tended to be so the Neville's got a lot of land up there and also you know the Neville's over the years have always been um an important cog 
in the defensive machine against the Scots. So you've got to have somebody up there that's going to replace the Nevilles. So, you know, you're Edward, you think, well, who, who can I trust that I can send up north? The brother, Richard. And so Richard of Gloucester is given all this land in the north of England. People some, sometimes say, oh, well, you know, he's, he's from York. He's not. He's a Midlander. He's, mm. you know, he's born at Fotheringay in the, in the East Midlands. But he's sent up and he's given um, a lot of estates, uh, Neville estates in the north, which he, um, he also will um, strengthen later by marrying um, Anne Neville who is Warwick the Kingmaker's daughter. So all of that ability, really, of, of, of Richard, you know, to, to intervene on national politics, in national politics, and that idea that you hear that, that you know, he favours Northerners, and it's one of the reasons why he doesn't get acceptance in the South when he sees his power in 1483. But much of it comes from this battle at Barnet. Okay, so Edward has won the, the Battle of Barnet. It's said that it was a costly battle, and that uh, one of the, the accounts, there's a very useful account of all of this. It's called The Arrival. It's called The Arrival. And it, it basically is it's written by a clerk of Edward the, the Fourth about the whole campaign, about what happened. Um, obviously, because it's written by a clerk of Edward the Fourth, it's going to be pro-Edward. Mm. But it does discuss tactics, strategies, decisions at the level that, that few other things do. And so we do rely very heavily on this account. It's not the only account, you know, you've got other things that are written, you know, there or, or shortly afterwards, Walkworth's Chronicle uh, for it is, a, is another example written maybe 1480. But the, the contemporary account is very much the arrival. And uh, it, it says a lot about, about, about what happened. One account says about Edward's army that, that they went out, you know, on fine horses and in, in splendid armor. They came back badly wounded without noses and on paltry nags. So it gives you an idea about the brutality of the fighting. So Edward has won, but his army has, uh, has suffered quite, quite heavy casualties, really, in the um, fighting to defeat Neville. So on the very day that this battle is, is fought and won, Margaret lands at Weymouth. Now, you'd think in a way that this she would see, and her advisors would see the defeat of Neville, as a disaster because it's half of their army destroyed, isn't it? Half of their supporters destroyed, but it does appear that they didn't see it that way. And it's quite clear that they only supported um, the Nevilles because the Nevilles were enemies of, of Edward IV. And they almost appear to have been quite glad about it because they, first of all, they felt that um, it meant that people that maybe didn't like the Nevilles might come and join them. So old Lancastrians might come and join them who'd been held back because they didn't like the Nevilles. Um, and I think they probably saw it in the same way that maybe William the Conqueror would have reacted to the Battle of Stamford Bridge up in the north of England, where Harold Godwinson defeats the, the Viking invaders, Harold Hadrada. He wins the battle, but his forces are badly weakened in that in that whole campaign but what he what he'd done is he'd taken a, a potential rival out of the equation so maybe actually the um forces of margaret you know okay neville's gone well who cares you know he's weakened edwards we never liked him anyway we can deal with this on our own but of course now they're going to have to deal with it on their own and they're going to have to face up to edward who is a, a very vigorous uh, campaigner, and he heads off westwards 
uh, to take them on. Okay, so we've, we've got Edward the Fourth's uh, army licking their wounds north of London. Margaret and her forces have have landed at Weymouth. Is is Edward the Fourth is Edward the Fourth aware that Margaret is on her way? At what point are they aware of each other's presence? And and take us through that, and then what happens next? Okay, well, it takes a little while, I think, for for Edward to be aware of this. He was, I think, he was aware that an invasion was in the offing, but actually, um, perhaps luckily for him, um, he was over at Windsor. I think, when he heard the news. And the reason for this was that he was doing a garter ceremony there, the Order of the Garter. And of course, this was, you know, he's re-established himself as king. And I think by holding that garter ceremony there, he's making a public statement, isn't he? That, uh, you know, here I am, I am king. Incidentally, he didn't um, uh, maltreat the bodies of, uh, of, of, the, of the Neville. He displayed them in, um, in London so that people could see that they, they were dead. So he's sort of acting, you know, as, as, as monarch at this point. He's making a few points. A, I've defeated my, my opponents, my key opponents. B, you know, it's business as usual, really, I suppose, is the way to look at that, at that, um, at that garter ceremony. So he's now on the, on the, on the right side of London to deal with them um, and an assault on London by the Lancastrians. So that's not what the Lancastrians do. I think that they feel that they're rather short of men. And so they're going to need to get some reinforcements. Now, where can they get any reinforcements? Wales, where that you've got, you could definitely count on the on the support of Jasper Tudor. So that is in fact what the uh, the Lancastrians uh, decide to do. And it was really, really hot. It was very, very hot uh, this, this period, incidentally. And the accounts say that. You know, the troops were thirsty, exhausted, etc. But despite that, both armies um, march very quickly. Edward gathers together his forces um, and learning about what the, uh, the Lancastrians are planning to do. And he, he can probably work. He might have had news that they're heading north, you know, rather than up towards London. His plan is um, I get to the West Country and if I can intercept, what I want to do is to intercept the Queen She's got with her uh, Edmund uh, Beaufort, uh, the, um, the, the Duke of Somerset. And Beauforts had always been big Lancastrian supporters and a veteran um, uh, soldier in John Wenlock, Lord Wenlock, who had been around forever, really. He, he, he was there in the Hundred Years War, at the beginning of the Hundred Years well, uh, in, in the beginning of the English occupation of of Normandy in the 1420s, he'd been a governor of, of, of a town in Normandy. So a veteran old soldier, really, an old diplomat. Um, always a, a, a big pal of Warwick. So he can't have been very pleased when he heard that, that Warwick, he, he joined the thing really because he, um, I think he supported Warwick rather than any great love for Margaret of Anjou, who had employed him but sacked him. Um, at an earlier uh, stage in, um, in in his career. But uh, so they're, they're, they're coming across, but they feel I don't think they've got enough men. If they can get to um, to Wales, um, there's a good chance of, of, of getting men there. Uh, but it, it, although they, they they march as quickly as they can from Weymouth, the, the, the advance there was, a, was, was held up, uh, partly because they, they, they were a bit short of stuff and they had to make a detour to Bristol. So instead of heading straight to Wales, they, they go to, uh, uh, to Bristol. And then the next place they come to, which would have been um, the ideal 
perhaps place from which to make a, a crossing was Gloucester, but Gloucester won't let them in. Gloucester denies them entry. So they could sort of stop and try and storm Gloucester, but that's not with the number of troops that they've got. Um, this could have been fatal, you know, to attempt mm. to storm it. Even if they captured Gloucester, I think they would have lost a lot of men. So they abandon that and they carry on north, looking really to find a, a crossing over the River Severn. And there is, of course, one at, 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 um, at Tewkesbury. And so the idea is for the the, um, the Lancastrians, so as I say, just to reiterate, you've got Margaret of Anjou, you've got um, the, the heir to the Lancastrian throne in Edward, you've got the Duke of Somerset, they've been joined by uh, the Earl of Devon, they've got Lord Wenlock there, and they're trying to get across into, in, into Wales, but they've got to get across the River Severn. Now, you can't just hop across the river. Takes yeah. a long time. You've got to queue up and wait your turn. And then, you know, some cart gets stuck in the ford and you've got to mend that, etc. So, and you're all, you know, you, 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 it takes a while to do that. So you don't, what you don't want is an enemy army turning up as you're attempting to, uh, uh, to do it. And that's exactly what happens. Edward is showing incredible energy with, with his army and they, they hot foot it from Windsor westwards in an a, a, attempt to catch the, um, uh, the Lancastrians while they're before they can cross into Wales. Um, they very nearly actually um, caught the Lancastrians before at Chipping Sodbury, but the Lancastrians uh, avoid this and on they go. So on the 3rd of May 1471, the Lancastrians have got to Tewkesbury. So they've reached the place where they want to make their crossings, but they're well aware that, you know, the Yorkists under Edward IV are not far behind. So the last thing they want to do, as I say, is be attacked by the Yorkists as they're trying to get across the river because they won't be in battle array. They'll all be queuing up to get across the river. Half of them might be across the river. The other half might not be. Disaster. Mm. And all of this, it's incredible, the, the speeds. The Lancastrians uh, did the last um, uh, uh, 24 miles, it said, in 16 hours. Now, for an army at that time, that's is quite impressive. And back to what you're saying about the heat. We are in England, but England can get very hot in May. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, they're carrying stuff, aren't they? And, and they're uh, carrying you stuff. Know, and if yeah. you're wearing armour, who knows whether, you know, that those that had armour wore it all the time. Uh, so, they may have but so potentially armor. they're in metal with the sun metal, beating down hot, on them. Exactly. You know, you think about the end of a, any kind of marathon and they give you those metal sort of um, blankets to keep the heat in. Well, these guys... You know, whatever, if they're not wearing the stuff, it's got to be carried, mm. you know, so oxen get tired, horses get tired, people get tired. So they're exhausted. But so are Edward's troops, but they do the same thing. They catch up with them. So on the um, on, on, on the 3rd of, um, of, of May, the Lancastrians are in are in um, Tewkesbury, but they realise that they're not going to be able to cross the river without fighting a battle. What they're going to have to do is turn, fight the Yorkists. And if they can drive them back, that will buy them the time then to go across the river if they choose to, or if they manage to win a spectacular victory, they might not need to. So either way, the um, the Lancastrians decide to stand and fight just south of, of, of Tewkesbury. And that is the background really to why there was a battle fought at Tewkesbury. So it's the rump of the, uh, of, of the, the, the Lancastrians uh, the Nevilles have been knocked out of the equation. And this is this is the last chance, really, you could say, I think, for Margaret and uh, and her hopes for her son. 
Mm. So can they, can they win the following day at Tewkesbury? And how much of a role does Margaret have in at this point then in the, the strategy, you know, the decision making? I think that the way I see Margaret um, is that she has a major role in the policy making and the decisions on who you ally with. And no doubt she clearly she would have been um, involved in the decisions about where they should go in that way. So I think on the broader sense, she's playing quite a leading part in this, without a doubt. When it comes to the battle itself, I think less so. So I don't think that, you know, she's going to be making decisions about what moves they're going to make on the battle. But in the broader sense, you know, the initial alliance with Warwick, for example, um, going to Wales, for example, those kind of things. I think Margaret is closely involved in those things. And, you know, she is a driving force at the, at the spirit. She is the, you know, if, if the Yorkists have got Edward to encourage them. I feel that uh, that, that Margaret is, a, is, is an impressive uh, woman. And, and I think that, you know, notwithstanding all the things we read about, you know, the role of women at that time, I think that she was, you know, an, an important player. She's an agent. She's not just things that happen to her. She makes them happen. So I always have a, you know, there's a lot of people, earlier history sort of call her a she-wolf and that she's not very nice someday. And, 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 and I, but I look at her and I think that she's got all of the characteristics that you would want to the monarch, actually, in the way that she is determined, she's loyal, she doesn't give up. She is cruel at times, but then monarchs have to be cruel. But these are all things that I think in the past are seen as male attributes. Yeah. So she's just a leader. She has, the, she has the, yeah, there's this woman taking a leading role and she does these things and people shouldn't be happening. You know, it's a woman. So it's it's kind of gender politics, gender history. Play. Yeah. Right. And maybe uh, maybe forced by a, a subsequent generation back because clearly she's being listened to at the time. Very much so. Very much so. You, all the way through the, um, when, when she's able to, you know, you, you look at the period uh, at the outbreak of the, of the Wars of the Roses. But, you know, again, you know, Lady Margaret Beaufort's another, um, you know, the, the, these people are important agents in all of this, you know, that we, we you know, it's not a an all-male affair at all. They're, 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 they've got a lot of, um, particularly, I think, sort of wider strategic or political uh, um, agency is how I would look at it. Mm. She's very clear she's got a strategy anyway. She, she knows where she's uh, where she's aiming for. So let's talk about the 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 battlefield itself. I'm keen to do this. Um and then we'll then we'll look at, at the battle and the people involved and, and what happens. So they don't intend to meet at Tewkesbury. I imagine there's quite a few reasons not to meet at Tewkesbury. I mean, anyone who's spent any time in Tewkesbury at whatever time of year will know that it's prone to flooding for a start. <laughs> but we're talking a dry period, so let's. So how how large is the battlefield? You know, what's the terrain like? Where are the different sides managed to camp themselves? What what are we looking at in terms of the the physicalities of, yeah. of the? Terrain? Well, today uh, has has changed somewhat simply be, because of the expansion of the town and so uh, perhaps half of the of the battlefield now is built upon but luckily for us the 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 areas where perhaps the most important fighting took place um are not built upon so what you've got to to, to think about you three at, at the time was that um you, you've got a, a, a smallish town built very much 
um, around the, um, uh, the the Tewkesbury Abbey. So you've got Tewkesbury Abbey in, in, in the centre, and you've got your, your town around it with some wharves going down to the to the River Severn. And then south of, of Tewkesbury, you've got open fields. You have the fields down there, uh, and enclosed fields, often nearer to a town, you will get a lot of enclosures. So south of, of, of Tewkesbury, you've got um, some open fields, a lot of enclosed areas, um, some woodland um, and um, a hillock, which they, they refer to. So it, it, it's sort of mixed terrain uh, down there. Behind, and you imagine the, the Lancastrians, because they're hoping to cross over the river um, seven. They've got the seven at their back, really, which is not a great thing to do if you get defeated, because it tends to get in the way. The the orcas are coming up really from the from the southeast, and so they're looking toward. They would have seen seen uh, Tewkesbury Abbey um, in the distance, probably the, the tower of Tewkesbury Abbey, and they would have seen where the Lancastrians were drawn up. And if you go there now, there's a there's a, an old pub called um, Gupsill Manor, which is a nice place for. For, for lunch before or after you look around the battlefield, actually perfect, really. And it said that it was in that area that Margaret uh, camped with her army and uh, seems no reason to, to disagree with that. So, and the area, now these battles, it depends what you define as the battlefield, I suppose. If by the battlefield, we mean the area in which the heavy fighting took place, it's a relatively confined area. I would say, that we're talking about armies of maybe 45,000 a side. That's, so it's not a huge number of people. Although I imagine if you were in Tewkesbury and 5,000 people turned up in those days, you know, you, you'd have been a bit, a bit taken aback by it, especially when they started to nick all your stuff, hmm. give you typhus because they spread their lice to you, you know, poo in your back garden, I don't know what, you know. So 5,000 people, you know, in some ways we could say it's a small army, but that's us looking at it. I reckon if you were a shopkeeper in Tewkesbury, you wouldn't have seen it that way at all. You know, so not a huge, not huge armies. Maybe the area of the fighting might be at a maximum a square mile, possibly less than that. Maybe three quarters of a mile by three quarters of a mile. But of course, we also need to take into account, on top of that, the retreat that follows afterwards, the approach to the battle. So when, for example, the battlefield starts. Um, we look at ensuring that battlefields are registered, which historic England do. You know, you have to make a decision how far you 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 register it for. Do you do you include part of the approach to the battle, part of the retreat? On the whole, it depends about how significant the approach or the retreat was and whether you include it. But we're talking here about a pretty, you know, it's a pretty um, tightly packed. Uh, piece of, of fighting it's, it's it's not a long you know widespread out at all it's 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 pretty compact yeah and 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 you're right there's quite a bit of it that we can you can still walk around in fact there's a battlefield walk how accurate is the um the signage as you go around so i, I think it claims that you're walking through the yorkist camp i think and then also Bloody Meadow, where the sort of route happens. So, yeah. you know, is it pretty good? Have they, have they well, got it? Well, it's tricky because, you know, we always want accuracy with, with, with matters. Mm. It's very nice to be able to say you are standing on the very spot where something happened. 
And on some battles, it's easier uh, than others. I mean, we have a slight problem always with um, understanding battles, that the people that wrote about them in the Middle Ages weren't writing about them with a view to enabling somebody to walk around the battlefield at a later date or with a view to history, what they're interested in as much as, you know, what that battle meant rather than than what happened. So, and also they can be quite formulaic. Um, and a classic example of this is that some people have made a lot of at Bosworth of the fact that it says that the, um, that, that Henry's army moved so they had the sun behind them. And people have actually looked and, and used that as a, a way of working out where the armies were. But this is something that's straight out of Vegetius and Christine de Pizan, who wrote, you know, so they say these are the things that you should do. So therefore, if you're going to write an account of a battle that makes you look good, you slip them in, don't you? Because, it may, you know, we, we move around brilliantly, so we have the sun behind us. Oh, yes, they know what they're doing. But I think one has to be a little bit cautious. Secondly, of course, the people that did the writing at the time didn't have any maps so you know i've done done things overseas with the, with the army you know where you write a report afterwards and you've got maps to go back to you think what was the name of that village i can't remember what it was called you know and you go look it up you know, and mm. do it in that way and uh, you remember things don't you so um in, in in that way and then you can check them they couldn't do that and really they weren't that bothered about doing it anyway they're more interested in showing that, you know, the intervention of God or the bravery of an individual person, et cetera. So, you know, you've got, the, you've got that issue. They don't know where they are necessarily. None of them are from Tewkesbury. So therefore, they're not necessarily going to know, you know, they're going to talk in general terms about, you know, we came to an area of enclosure or there was a, there was a huge hill. Well, what does huge mean? Mm, so right. if you see two sources that are quite similar, you have to look at, of what's going on uh, and, and is it that one is simply a rewriting of the other mm. so we've got the we've got one source which we really rely on which is the arrival but it's it's not precise about things so therefore you can never be dead sure from a source like that um where something happens you know if they say you know well, we deployed in front of the hill well, what does in front of me does it mean you know with the slopes immediately behind you or does it mean you know exactly so you know we we have we we kind of know where it took place but it's very difficult to pinpoint where individual there are some battles where you can so for example hastings you know loads of the accounts say that um that battle abbey was built on the spot where harold set up his standard and you go there and it's on that highest point of the hill and it makes absolute sense so there we can but on this battle it's very difficult to be absolutely precise. So we have a, a, a rough idea, but if you look at accounts, um, one to a, another, they vary maybe by 200 yards about where the, uh, the the armies are deployed. Now, there are certain things that are not changing. One, of course, is Tewkesbury Abbey. Mm. And it's worth going to Tewkesbury for the Abbey alone, really. And I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later on. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm always, uh, but, you know, people don't want to hear we don't know. You've got to have some kind of narrative, you know, so, yeah. you, you know, I, 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 I tend to in things say, you know, it, we believe or it is thought. But actually, it's very interesting what you say, though, there around about the sources that, you know, you could say, well, we've got a few sources. But then you also have to think, well, did they piggyback off each other? Are they writing for the similar sort of purpose? Um, yeah. And and. Like you say, just with your analogy of a football match, 
there are many people involved in that football match and they will each have um, a different... Their own truth. Their Absolutely. own, yeah, their Absolutely. own truth, which is why, yeah, truth maybe is... I mean, don't you, we, we, we deal, we, I have a lot of teachers um, who are interested in, in, in history, you know, we, as, as we know, and, and uh, it's always very amusing. They say, if there's some trouble in the playground and you get the, the, the two ringleaders together and ask them to give an account of what happened... They're both going to come up with a completely different account yes. of who started, who did what, you know, and it's um, of course. It's, a, it, and, it, it's quite interesting. You know? And in the case of a battle, like the, you know, the, the, obviously it's an old adage, the, the winners write history. You haven't so, got potentially the account of the losers. Um, they're not going to be that interested in writing this down. And if, if, if it was going to survive, if they were going to even get opportunity and if that would survive. So, so we've got, the already battle-worn, frog-marched uh, Yorkists under Edward IV. By this point, we have the three brothers back together and they're pitched up against um, uh, Margaret of Anjou's forces. Uh, now, Margaret doesn't, she doesn't enter the battlefield, does she? But her son Edward, now 17, does. He has to. You know, it, right. it's expected of him, really, you know, at that age. And 17, you know, uh, I mean, let's, think, let's face it, Edward IV, it's kind of running the show at, at 19, isn't he? So, you know, at 17 is, is, would have been considered majority. It's not like he's a child. You know, but what you say about him as well, he sounds like he is, That's that would be his choice as well. He wants to, he sounds quite bloodthirsty actually, but yeah. he wants that opportunity to, um, to prove who he is, what he's there for, what he's yes. about to hopefully um, achieve and, and do uh, to follow on from that. So, so what's the day of the battle like? How does the, how <laughs> I'm intrigued by things like how does it get started? You know, what happens? Okay. Um, this is a period where command and control, as we would call it, is 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 quite difficult. Uh, nowadays, you know, you, you've got radios and you can signal and you can you can react to what's going on. In those days, you had to be a little bit basic in what you did. And there were some basic principles that that tended to happen and one was that you tended to deploy your army um, in three battles or three blocks of people so imagine a a block three blocks of maybe 1500 men probably with the the best armored people at the front in that way you know that that would be the the way to think of it quite a lot of um of missile troops so all english armies from this period had a very high percentage of archers in them no. Um, but also gunners. They had uh, hand gunners. Um, one of the accounts uh, talks about Edward going into um, uh, London with a black and smoky sort of hand gunner. In other words, you can imagine that there's the soot and what have you. And they're coming in with these guns, you know, with these burning tapers. So you've got hand gunners, um, light guns as well. They were um, like little cannons, really. Um, they called them things like serpentines and things like that. Little, little guns that could either fire out a ball or hail shot. But of course, it's that, for example, it's those balls that helped us find where Bosworth was because there was lots of guns at Bosworth and it was finding those cannonballs of different sizes that enabled us to know where the, uh, where the fighting took place. Um, so you, you've got your box of men and they tended to be divided into the, the, uh, the vanguard, the main woods and the rear guard. And traditionally, the vanguards, when, when they deployed, it went over to the right. So imagine they're, they're arriving on the battlefield. The vanguard will go over to 
the right, this is my right. The main um, wood, which is where the commanders are going to be, is going to come into the centre. And then the rear guard come over to the left. But exactly how that worked at, um, at, at, at both Barnet and Tewkesbury is a little bit uncertain. But it does appear that at Tewkesbury, uh, Richard of Gloucester, who seems to have performed well at, uh, at Barnet. Now, whether he performed well as an individual or whether his, uh, his unit performed well is, is open to debate, but he seems to have not disgraced himself at, um, at, that, at that battle. So he's, he's put over to uh, the, uh, the left. Um, Edward has the centre. Clarence is very rarely given independent command because he's unreliable. His job is to be there, you know, with, with his troops, but you don't want Clarence doing things because who knows what he's going to end up doing. And then it looks as though um, William Hastings, who's Edward's mate, has the right flank. That's the way that they're that they're deployed. The um, uh, the the uh, the Yorkists, the Lancastrians, um, the Duke of Somerset has the right flank. So because of course he's on the other side of the battlefield, you have to turn it round if you see what I mean. So he's facing Richard of Gloucester. In the centre, um, you have Lord Wenlock and Edward. So you get this feeling that Edward is, you know, nominal commander, but Wenlock is sort of advising him. That's the way I, where I look at it. And then on the far side, you've got Courtney, um, Earl of Devon. So they're, they're facing each other. So it's, it's three blocks uh, facing each other. Um, but there's a slightly, slightly more to it. Now, it appears that the Lancastrians cobbled together a plan. Now, um, when you read the arrival, it says, I don't know whether they thought of this plan all along or whether, in fact, it was in reaction to what happened. Because the initial part of the battle, and many of these battles started this way, you have an exchange of missile fire, so guns and archery and, and, and so on and, and so on. And, uh, you know, this famously happens at the Battle of Towton in 1461, where um, the Yorkists win the uh, archery duel, mainly because they have the wind behind them. And the Lancastrians are shooting into a blizzard and they can't see what's going on and all their arrows fall short. The Yorkist arrows land amongst the Lancastrians and then the battle starts. At this battle, um, it looks as though the Yorkists have the better of this exchange. Uh, the accounts suggest they have more guns and, the, and so the Lancastrians are standing there in their lines and they're starting to suffer casualties. So then they have to decide what to do. Now, it may have been as a result of this, but it looks as though the, uh, the, the Lancastrians are cobbled together a plan. And the plan was that over on the Yorkist left, there were a load of, there was woods there. And the Yorkists couldn't see very much. In front of them, there were, um, it appears that there were quite a lot of enclosures. So little hedges, big hedges and little fields. Um, and then there was the, these woods. And then a little bit further uh, to, the, to the left, there was a, a big hill. And the Lancastrians got this idea, what we'll do, is we'll go on a we'll go on a march behind the woods where the Yorkists can't see us, and we'll fall on their flank. So we'll so Somerset, I'll do that, and then Wenlock and, and Devon, you attack, and we'll catch the, uh, the the Yorkists in the flank and the front, and we'll roll up their whole army. Brilliant plan, actually, on on, on the face of it. You know, it's a it's a, a tricky thing to try and do on a battlefield at that time, but that appears to be what the uh, the Lancastrian plan was. So it's a big hook round using these woods as cover and then emerge on the Yorkist flank, all being while the Yorkists are being kept busy by the other Lancastrians. And then you're surprising because they're being attacked in two directions at once. So that's the plan. However, like all plans, it never survives contact with the enemy. 
And it goes wrong in two ways. In fact, probably more than two ways. But the first thing is that Edward is no mug. And he understands battlefields. You know, he is, a, you know, he, he hasn't won at Mortimer's Cross and at Towton and at Barnet without having something about him. He's no mug at all. And he looks at the battlefield beforehand and he realises that there is a possibility that his flank could be attacked. So he, um, he positions sort of further over on the battlefield, uh, 200 mounted spearmen, mounted knights, men at arms, to guard that flank. So he's taken, he, he's thought about what he's going to do about it. So when the, uh, the Lancastrians make their flanking attack, the spearmen ride in and attack the Lancastrians in the flank. So he's dealt with it. But it's only 200, and it's possible that he might have, uh, that, that Somerset might have succeeded in, in this. However, he's expecting Lord Wenlock and, and, and the Earl of Devon to also attack, and it doesn't happen. And uh, Somerset finds the, 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 the going hard because of all of these hedges, etc. Gloucester, Richard of Gloucester, the future Richard III, commands his men very well. And a combination of a stout defence, I think, difficult terrain, and these Yorkist spearmen suddenly appearing, the Lancastrians have pushed back. Now, to say that, um, that, that Somerset is unhappy is a, a, an understatement. And um, some, one account uh, says that, that he got back up on, you know, with the remains of his troops, you know, they, they're, they're scurrying back to their lines. They've lost lots of people in this fighting. They've not made the progress that they thought they would make. And there's Lord Wenlock with saying they haven't moved. And so um, one account says that, um, that, that uh, Somerset rode up to Lord Wenlock in a rage, got out his battle axe and brained him, killed him there on the battlefield. So because suspecting him really of, um, of treachery is what, he's, what the implication is in that way. Now, who knows why um, Wenlock didn't move? We can discuss that at a later date, maybe. But, you know, he didn't move. Uh, whether that actually happened, whether Somerset did brain him or not, one account says it, but maybe it, it, you read that account and is it like trying to understand Robert Bruce and William Wallace by reading Braveheart, watching Braveheart? Who knows whether it happened? But the fact is that the Lancastrian army is then, it's lost one lot of troops. When um, when Locke is killed, whether by it's, it's by Somerset or in arrow fire or whatever, you know, losing that, the Lancastrian army dissolves really at this point and it starts to flee off the battlefield and the battle is won but the great question is and and i'm sure you're going to ask me this uh, how did people know that a battle had had ended yeah well this is it is actually a question that occurred to me when i was preparing for this and i thought actually any battlefield how do they actually know when it's won it's not there's a referee there um yeah how how do how do they know well, it's a great question. And I think the answer is a lot of fun. They didn't. Okay. So yeah. how would you know? Well, let, 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 let's look at it. If you, were, if, you were, if you were fighting and your army had been defeated, you'd know that the battlefield, for you, the battle was over either when somebody comes up and shoves a spear in your stomach you or you find that you're surrounded and you surrender and you, well, you wouldn't do that, you'd probably be doing this, wouldn't you? Please don't kill me, etc. Or panic spreads and you think, I've had enough of this and I'm running. If you were a, a commander on, um, one, on, on the side that's losing, 
you'd probably look and, you know, if you were alive to do it, you'd probably say, right, that's enough of that, we're off. Or you might surrender or you might try and tell your troops to pull back and go. So, but is that the end of the battle? Because a battle is also a big pursuit. And we know, for example, that after the Battle of Towton, um, bodies were found over like 25 square miles where they're running away. So is that wow. part of the battle? You know, and a lot of casualties are, are in the pursuit. If you're the, if you're the winning side, okay, how do you know the battle's over? Well, probably when there's nobody in front of you to fight or when you're told to, to stop. If the people you've killed everybody or the people in front of you have, uh, have surrendered or the opposition have run away, um, then the battle is over. But it's a very fluid thing. And on some battles, take, for example, the Battle of Flodden, one wing of the, of the, of the battle um, ended while the rest was carrying on. So on one side, uh, basically, the battle came to an end after about an hour and both sides just have stopped and just looked at each other. But the fighting continued elsewhere. At Agincourt, um, both the English and the French thought that the battle was over and they got to that stage where they're almost going out to look for noble casualties and the heralds are going out on that circle. There's the Duke of Alençon and that's, that's the Duke of York. And so they start noting down who's, who's killed. But the third line of the French army, which arrived late, didn't know the battle was over. And they move forward as though they're going to attack again. So everybody thought the battle was over. So, oh my God, there's more French coming. And coupled with an attack on the um, on the English uh, baggage train by some sort of locals, suddenly, oh my God, it's the battle started again. And that's why Henry V ordered lots of prisoners to be killed at that point. And it's interesting at the time, nobody saw what Henry V, you know, he famously ordered the execution of all these prisoners. Nobody at the time saw it as a war crime. They blamed the French for restarting the battle when they'd clearly lost. So, you know, what, it's a very sort of fluid thing. But, you know, if, if you're in it, you're going to know because of simply what's going on around you. As you say, it wasn't um, calling time, although God could call time by making it dark. And nobody liked fighting in the dark. So you might say, well, we'll stop now. And then in the morning you will start again. And by that time, one side or the other may have, may have scarpered. So with Tewkesbury, I think you've got the Lancastrians running away then back through town. In principle, what you know, what's the kind of you're talking there about war crimes, really? You know, at what point is someone who's running away from you um, in a battle or have surrendered and you should be pulling back? Or is it just you know what was there a convention as to what should happen? Very interesting, um, and you know, we talk about chivalry and, uh, and, and and what have you. The thing about the Wars of the Roses battles is that they're all about um, uh, killing the opposition leaders. That's what you're really fighting for. You're not really fighting, uh, with the exception, I suppose, of the of the northeast where the Lancastrian castles are. You're not really fighting for control of land or to move a front line forward in that way. What you're trying to do is to take out the opposition leaders. And so these battles, you know, from St. Albans in 1455 onwards, it's all about eliminating your rivals. And you may kill a lot of um, sort of uh, common soldiers, but your purpose, you do that in order to eliminate your rivals, not for any other, not for any other particular purpose, because you don't want to kill too many people because you need them to work the fields, don't you? And mm. 
whatever. So you, but you don't need the, the, the Duke of Somerset for that. So at these battles, so at, so example, at, at, uh, at the first battle of St. Albans in 1455, the Yorkists who are Richard of York, the original leader of the York, Yorkists, Warwick, the kingmaker and his dad, they seek out and kill the Lancastrian leadership. So they kill the Duke of Somerset. They kill the Earl of, of, of Northumberland. They kill Lord Clifford. That's what they do. It's like a coup, really. Mm-hmm. Of course, that hacks off the sons of these people. And at the Battle of Wakefield um, in 1460, the Lancastrians kill the chief Neville, Earl of Salisbury. They kill Richard of York. And of course, then Edward IV is in no mood for mercy. And at the Battle of Towson, he gives the order no mercy and he kills a lot of the Lancastrian leadership. And it goes on uh, like that. Although, interestingly, um, once the fighting's over, you, you know, unless you were really beyond the power, Edward IV made great efforts to bring Lancastrians back on side. Even the, the, the heir to the Dukedom of Somerset, he kind of tried to make friends with him. I think because he realised that you can't just rule through the Nevilles. You've got to broaden your support than that. So in that mm. way. But then you go back to battle again, 1470, um, 1471, and you get the same thing again. So both sides are trying to kill their their um uh, their bellies. You can try and surrender. Uh, people um attempted to sur- to surrender. It's possible, for example, that Edward, um, Prince Edward attempted to surrender, but it was not gonna happen. So let's um, talk about that because yeah. there's other things that happen after the battle. Yes. Um, so let's first of all, yes, let's talk about what happens to to Edward. So is is the only heir, the only hope of Henry the Sixth, um, his only son. Um, but yeah, w- what what happens to him? Okay. Uh, to put it um, bluntly, he's killed. Everything beyond know. that, everything beyond that, is a later elaboration. Right. So the circumstances in which he was killed, probably he was he was he was killed whilst fleeing, probably in the same way, for example, that uh, Warwick, the kingmaker, um, was killed trying to get away after the Battle of Barnet, you know, and, and other people were killed at other battles. So, and of course, I, I imagine he would have been very um, recognisable because he would probably have been wearing his uh, um, the arms of England which both sides, would, leaders would have worn because they both saw themselves as kings. So, you know, the arms of England courted with that of um, France with a label, which is like a white bar on it coming down, which showed that he was the eldest son in that way. And almost certainly he would have had a bodyguard around him. So if you were the victorious um, uh, Yorkist, you'd see that that group of people and you'd make a beeline for them. And then you would, uh, um, you, 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 the, the rest is, is history, really. Now, some accounts uh, say that he was overtaken by the troops of the of the Duke of Clarence and he cried for mercy, but Clarence would have none of it and he was killed. And later accounts say that he was captured and brought before um, Edward the, uh, the Fourth. Um, and, you know, Edward the Fourth said, what are, you, what are you doing? You know, and he said, well, I'd come back to get my, uh, um, my rightful inheritance and Edward hits him with his glove and he's killed there and then. That appears to be a, a sort of a later elaboration. I think all we can say about um, about him was that he was killed in the in, in the fighting. It's all we can say, really. But it, I mean, it has a huge impact because you know you're you're, you're right. The it's the last hope of the House of Lancaster, other than this guy called Henry Tudor, 
well I, I have a special question about him that i'm going to ask you yeah, about but he's he's gonna well. he's not gonna account too much at, at, at this no, time I, I, um, that's yeah. um, but also it signs it's the death warrant for henry the sixth because the way i read it they, they say some of the accounts at the time say that he died of pure melancholy but i suspect what Helped happened by. was that that the melancholy was a cushion but yeah, helped along a by a pillow on the head or whatever. Um, and you know, you think, well, why did the Yorkists keep him alive for so long? Because you know, um, why not? Well, there were, I think there's two reasons. One is that if you kept him alive, uh, you could always get him out and say, "Look, you're opposing it. This is what you're fighting for. Look at this chap. He's never going to be king." Um, and also, if you killed him, who's going to be the leader of the Lancastrian faction? His son who's a far more dangerous proposition than his father. And so once the son is gone, there's absolutely no reason to keep the, uh, the, the father, in my opinion. And so that's why he's, uh, he's killed. And really, that's, the, uh, um, that, that's to all intents and purposes. You could say that if the Wars of the Roses were a struggle between the House of Lancaster and the House of York, that the House of York wins the Wars of the Roses in those purely dynastic terms at that battle. Because after that... <laughs> Yeah, the army that, that, that Henry Tudor brings into action is, is we, we sometimes say it's Lancaster, we sometimes say it's Tudor. A lot of them are Yorkists who don't like the, uh, uh, the seizure of power of, um, of, of Richard of Gloucester. And, and many of the people that fought at this battle for um, Edward go on and fight for Henry Tudor at the Battle of Bosworth, many of, of, of his, his, his affinity go over that way and some people I guess if you were a Ricardian you'd say that was a, a betrayal but those people would probably have said that by seizing power as he did it was Richard that had betrayed the House of York and so you know that, that they saw it slightly different so I always see Richard's army at, um, at Bosworth as a Ricardian army not a Yorkist army because there's so many Yorkists former Yorkist people that supported Edward IV and would have gone on supporting him if he hadn't have died so early over on the um, on the Lancastrian side. Just a, 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 a little aside, incidentally, um, one of the great things about going to um, Tewkesbury in the summer is they've got this great project by which uh, they have produced these painted banners of over a hundred of the knights that fought, and they all hang out from the from the the shop. So it's absolutely wonderful. You know, you go through and look. There's you know, I don't know, Stanley, there's John Cheney, there's, there's Richard, there, you know, it's, it's, it's a real, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, you've been, it's a really colourful, wonderful. It, it looks event. fantastic. I was there with a tour group last year and actually I'll be there um, end of June, start of July this year. And, and I think they leave the banners up during the summer. So um, after they've had their festival, um, which commemorates the battle. Um, yeah. And the, the town just looks um, fantastic. It's, it's fantastic, isn't it? And it's just what you would want. I mean, they've really adopted, you know, it's a tragic thing, a battle, but in terms of the identity of Dukesbury, mm. it's wonderful, isn't it? You know, and those yeah. banners, I'll never forget one year I went there and um, uh, the, the, they, the, you, you, you go and, you, and they have all the um, banners in the town hall and the local shops come in and they pay like a tenner or something. And then, you get your banner and a little bit of information about your particular you, person. You know, you are, and everybody right. wants to get, you know, um, the one of Richard of, of Gloucester. And uh, I've, I've got one of the old ones of Richard of Gloucester when they were, they produced new ones. I bought it off them. 
it's in my shed at the moment. So I've got loads, loads of these things. Everybody wants those. And then not so many people want the Stanleys because of what their purport have done. But it's absolutely super. But I remember going around and uh, and I found Edward Fourth banner and it was over a shop that was selling lingerie and bikinis and things like that. And I thought Edward Fourth would have loved that. Yeah, he'd oh, he'd been, been, given yeah. what he was like, he'd have been it so happened. pleased that his banner was over <laughs> such a place, you know. But a wonderful local project. And as you say, well, you're, 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 your folk are going to have a brilliant time on, on their tour to go and see that. It's just so colourful. But it... It's so historical, isn't it? They've done great research on it. And I, I, I really yeah. like this great. Yeah. So the Lancastrians are fleeing from the battlefield. Where do they where do they actually go? I, I think ideally you try and get home if you can. But of course, these people are coming from a, a, a wide area. You know, some of them, they're, they're coming from, you know, Devon, you know, Northampton, all over the place. So it's, that's not always very easy. And of course, you may not have a horse. You may think, well, I'm never going to make it through, you know, you know Tewkesbury or, or anywhere. So you, you perhaps you try and claim sanctuary. So a number of the Lancastrian leaders get, get into Tewkesbury Abbey, where they try to claim sanctuary. Uh, but Edwards is having none of it, and essentially, he, with his troops, he enters the uh, the abbey and he drags them out. And then a couple of days later, Somerset, um, uh, Roos. Um, the Earl of Devon, etc., and many of the other knights that had fought on the on the, Lan- the, the Lancastrian side of this battle, they're tried and they're, and they're executed in, in Tewkesbury. And um, Somerset and uh, some of those, they're, they're buried in Tewkesbury Abbey. The other person that we've not accounted for at the end of this battle, of course, is Margaret of Anjou. She is um, eventually captured, but she's later ransomed by the, uh, the, the King of France, but she ends her life really. Uh, I can't remember if she ends it in a, in a nunnery precisely, mm. but you know, she—that's it for her. This is her very much her last hurrah. And so uh, after this, you know, she's lost her husband. She's got. She's lost her son. So what is there to fight for? And what ultimately for her is a is a foreign country. So so for her, you know, it's a rather tragic end, isn't it? Mm. It is. You know, it's just a loss of a very interesting woman there from history. Her time is done. So um, we're going to go on to patron questions in in a moment. Um, and uh, in fact, we're going to dig. Do you want to? Do you want to? Um, so we've ended quite. We've quite. We've ended quite abruptly mm. at, after. So you might want to say. You might ask me. Well, okay. So um, Edward has won at um, at Tewkesbury. At, at um, what happens next? Yes. Okay. And I Actually, might very I very. Uh, what I'll do is I'll just sort of say that there's still a bit of clearing up to do. He's still got, you know, there's an attack on London by Falkenberg, which is seen off. Uh, but essentially, you know, now he's going to reign unchallenged until his early death in, in 1483. But I'll say something about the Yorkist affinity. And I'll say that, you know, when that the only thing that held it together was Edward. And when he dies, you know, you, you get a power struggle. And I'll say, but that's another story. And then yes. that's we can talk about that. And, you, you know, you've probably done it. So we'll do it in that way. Okay. Uh, but that's an obvious end, isn't it? I think. Yeah. You know? Okay. And I'll end it with, but that's another story or, or something like that. Fab. Okay. So, so we've had the battle. The Yorkists have won. Edward the Fourth is what now? He's uncontested king. What, what actually happens next? Is this peace? 
yes there's still a bit of uh, can i say a bit of tidying up to do after the after this battle there still are um some lancastrians in arms and indeed one lancastrian uh, supporter who um was warwick's uh, uh illegitimate nephew chap called the bastard of folkenberg actually tries to attack london and is uh, is driven back so there's still some fighting but um but after the battle really edward is unchallenged you know and even you know his the, the ultimate um, person that that that, that ends the that, that House of York's reign, Henry Tudor, you know, initially all that he or at least his mother wants for him is to is to come back and get his inheritance as um, as Earl of Richmond. There's not initially any any idea that he should be um, he should be king. So there's nobody really challenging now um, Edward the Fourth as king. And the second part of his reign, you can say that that he can enjoy the fruits of victory, which I think he certainly did, because he kind of reminds me of, of, of Henry VIII in a way that as a young man, he's very strapping and, and you know, everybody loves him and all that. But as he goes, gets older, gets a bit overweight and, and uh, less healthy. And it looks as though um, Edward IV was just like that. Or maybe you should say that Henry VIII was like Edward IV. They're very, very similar in appearance, aren't they? When you look at them as mm. photos, when you look at uh, paintings of them as as, uh, as young people, so Edward IV is now is, is now is now uh, king. The uh, he's able to enjoy his his fruits of victory, um, but I think it's a mistake to think that the Yorkist affinity, by which I mean the people that have supported him, are in any way a united bunch. They're not. They all have their rivalries and their hatreds within each other. So on one hand, you've got the Woodfields. Um, it's pretty clear that his, his great friend, um, William Hastings, doesn't like the amount of power that the Woodfields have, have got. You've got George, Duke of Clarence, who is a completely unreliable uh, in, individual, you know, trying to plow his own furrow. You've, you've got there. You've got Edward's own household. So, you, you know, those people that owe their their, their sort of uh, uh, pro progress to him. Um, and you've got Richard of Gloucester. So these people are, are you know, they're rivals amongst, uh, amongst each other. And the only thing really that holds them together is the person of Edward IV. And so when Edward IV um, dies unexpectedly in 1483, you've got a, a situation where these different parts, I think, of the Yorkist divinity start to tear each other apart. And of course, what you end up with is a situation where uh, Richard of Gloucester seizes the throne. Um, and that, of course, un uh, unleashes a chain of events which will lead to, you know, a relatively unknown individual in Henry Tudor to come across and claim the throne and actually win at Bosworth. But of course, that's a different story. It is. Actually, I have a question which I'm going to put to you in the patron section about the Wars of the Roses and whether the Battle of Bosworth should be included. But I'm going to save that for the patron only. So before we move on to those uh, questions, we're going to say goodbye to to people watching the main interview. But before we do that, um, can you let everyone know where they can find you online, what you might be working on, um, anything that you're Okay. About your work, what you're doing. Oh, well, thanks for asking me. Well, um, if you, what am I doing? Quite a lot of tours. Various um, tour companies are available, aren't they, out there? Um, <laughs> they and, are. Um, I'm doing some, I, I do Battlefield Walks for um, English Heritage. So if you're a member 
um, have a look in their magazine and it tells you about that. Um, if you just Google Julian Humphreys, uh, a lot of the of the tours that I'm doing are out. At the moment, um, I'm writing for uh, Tudor Places magazine, which is a great magazine with lots of information about um, uh, about Tudor sites. So I, I, I do battlefields of perhaps inevitably, but also things like Oxbridge Colleges, that, that kind of thing. I've just finished um, co-authoring a book, uh, which is called 500 Battlefields of the World. Phew. Um, I didn't do all the world, but I did the, the English ones. And if you see that around, um, I've, I did the English uh, um, entries uh, for that. And I also write um, a lot of scripts for museums. So if you go along and you listen to one of those audio guides, um, as a, the tour leader I don't like them because I want to talk to the people but you know you, you get these all if you can't so, be there your exactly. words so they have those so I'm just finishing uh um, a, a new script for the D-Day museum down in Southsea I did one for Culloden and a number of other historic sites so sometimes we hear people sort of speaking about things it might be my words that that are out there so I've got a variety of things okay. but I, I'm, I'm a bit of a twitterer really a tweeter so if you um if you look at at Jules Humphreys. In a bizarre twist, my name is Julian Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-Y-S. There's also a Julian Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-I-E-S, who is also a battlefield guide. How could you, you couldn't make it up, could you? So it causes all kinds of confusion. But so, so you be, make sure be... you be up under Humphreys, H-U-M-P-H-R-Y-S, and you'll oh, see what I'm up to. And thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that was of, of some interest, you know. Fantastic. Thank you, Julian. By the time you come to, to Bosworth, it's not a Lancastrian army that, that, that fights for Henry. It's not a Yorkist army that fights for uh, Richard. 